Well, good morning, everybody. How are we? What do you think of our freezing fog? Well, apparently, I've been told that a number of areas in the city, the power is out. Thankfully, it's on here in more ways than one. Amen? By the way, for those of you who are visiting with us today or watching online, we are glad you're here. For those of you watching online that have power to watch online, and uh, we are glad you're uh, here and listening. Um, so just so you know, the um, Advent candle, not calendar, um, <clears throat> what we do is each week we have somebody uh, read the biblical text in something other than English. And so today, uh, the Wijanarcos read it in uh, Indonesian. That was beautiful, boss. That was amazing. Uh, so thank you. Uh, let's stand together. And uh, today we're talking about uh, the power of Christmas. And our focus today is joy. And we're doing that from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We just got two slides. And uh, I'm reading the green, and you're going to read the white. And this is what it says. That which was from the beginning. It's talking about Jesus, of course. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That our joy may be complete. Father, again, we pause in your presence to acknowledge that you are here. In the person of Jesus Christ, administered and made known through the work and ministry of the Spirit, And Father, we ask today that you would give us a voice to speak, that you would give us ears to hear, and Lord, that you would give us minds to comprehend and hearts to understand, and as we go out from this place, give us the grace, the courage, the strength, the wisdom, the insight to live out what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our communities, places where we work, where we get our education and where we find our services and all the things that our lives entail, Lord, we ask that you would help us to do this. And so we commit it and commit ourselves, commit your word and the preaching today in Christ's name, amen. Why don't you be seated? Timothy Keller begins his book, Hidden Christmas, with this. He writes that Christmas is the only Christian holy day that also is a major sect secular holiday, arguably our culture's biggest. The result is two different celebrations, each observed by millions of people at the same time. This brings some discomfort on both sides. Many Christians can't help but notice that more and more, the public festivities surrounding Christmas studiously avoid any references to its Christian origin. The background music in stores is moving from joy to the world to have a holly jolly Christmas. The holiday is promoted as a time for family, for giving, for peace in the world. But on the other hand, 
He writes, non-religious people can't help but find that the older meaning of Christmas keeps intruding. Uninvited, for instance, to the music of the traditional Christmas carols. It can be irritating to have to answer their child's question, what does that music mean? Born to give them second birth. It was C.S. Lewis who characterized the two overlapping versions of Christmas as Xmas and Christmas. So how are we to answer that question? What does that music mean? Born to give them second birth. Well, our text this morning helps us to answer that and to give us a voice. Christmas is about being vocal. And John, twice in our text, he uses the word proclaim. And this is one of the reasons why we have said that Christmas is the most missional time of the year. And there's many reasons for that. And one of those, of course, is that this is one of the times of the year that we can practically demonstrate the love of Jesus in tangible ways. But also added to that is that people are more open and more accessible to the gospel at this time of year and the meaning of Christ and the nativity. And also at this time of year, people are more inclined, I find, to ask questions. What does this mean? What does that mean? Why do you do this? Why do you sing that? And then, of course, you and I, we naturally find ourselves singing, humming, whistling our favorite tunes and words of Christmas carols. For example, I was in Starbucks in Barrie as we were coming through a couple of weeks ago, and um, we pulled into Starbucks, and I made my order, and I was sort of going... And just kind of to myself, minding my own business. And all of a sudden, there was this 10-year-old boy, cutest 10-year-old boy. His hair was combed immaculately. And what? He was there with his sister. And they were waiting for their order. And I was waiting for mine. And he says to me, how do you do that? He says, I've always wanted to learn how to whistle. Well, I gave him a few tips. And I said to him, now, here's the deal. Here's the most important part. You got to practice And you got to do it continuously. And eventually, if you practice enough, you'll get it. And when he was leaving, I said, now remember, you got to practice. You got to practice. And John says that Christmas is about being vocal. But, but, what are we vocalizing about Christmas? What are we proclaiming? Well, First of all, John says that Christmas, or secondly, is about being material. How many of you are golfers? Raise your hand, it's not a sin. Although it's humanly impossible to play. And the most frustrating game ever devised by some sick individual. How many of you recognize the name Arnold Palmer? Well, if you know anything about golf, you know about Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer was once uh, played um, a series of exhibition uh, games of golf uh, matches, I guess, in Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi king was so impressed by Arnold Palmer that he proposed that he give Arnold Palmer a gift. And so Palmer, of course, protested and said, it really isn't necessary, Your Honor. I, I'm, in, I'm honored to be invited. And, and the king said, well, I would be deeply upset if 
you would not allow me to give you a gift. And so Palmer thought for a moment and he said this. He said, all right, how about a golf club? How wouldn't it be a beautiful memento of my visit here that you would give me a golf club? Well, to a surprise, the next day, delivered to Arnold Palmer's hotel room was the deed to a golf club. (laughs) With thousands of acres of trees, lakes, and a clubhouse, and so on. Now, the moral of the story is simply this one. When you're in the presence of a king, don't ask for small gifts. Now, this is not the point. And this is not what John or we are talking about this morning. This is not what John means by Christmas is about being material. John begins by rooting us in the historical basis for Christmas. That the central truth of Christmas is founded on the historical reliability of Jesus Christ as being simultaneously human and God. That Christianity is anchored in the historical objective truth of Jesus Christ according to the witness of the first disciples who were the first followers of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is both the center and the summation of the Christmas message. I want you to imagine with me this. I want you to imagine if you could ask one question to any person, what would that question be? I don't want you to tell me out loud. What would that question be and who would you ask it of? So any question that you could ask of any person that you could ask it of, what would your question be and who would it be for? How many of you remember Larry King from Larry King Live on CNN? Yeah, yeah. Well, Larry King um, is considered to be one of the greatest uh, interviewers of all time. And he once said that the most important strategic interview question is the question, why? Well, King was interviewed by somebody else, and he was asked the question that I just asked you. He was asked, if you could ask one question to whomever you wanted to ask it of, what would the question be, and who would you direct it to? And King, a non-practicing Jew, answered, and he said, I would have one question, one question only, and it would settle it for me. The question would be, God, do you have a son? Now, I want you to imagine what it would be like if you and I could meet God. And I know that we can meet him spiritually, but but if we could meet God here now visibly, and you could ask him one question, what would that question be? Now, what's interesting is John didn't have to imagine meeting God. He did. In the person of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that John wants to tell us is that Jesus Christ really lived as a human being and as a human person. He says, we have seen with our eyes, 
And we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. And John plunges us into the heart of Christmas, the incarnation, the reality of the incarnation. And John says that the four witches, the four witches tell us about John's encounter with God as a human being, as a human person in Jesus Christ. Now, let me restate it. John wants to be clear that that which was from the beginning, the eternal life, that which was with the Father and the Jesus whom we have seen with our eyes and who have touched with our hands is the same person. Very important. And then John says three additional things to tell us about his personal interaction and his personal experience with this human person, this human being, Jesus. He says, which we have heard. He says, Jesus was vocal. He was audible. But we, we... By we, he means himself, of course, but he also means the first generation of followers of Jesus, particularly the disciples. He said, we have heard him speak. We have heard him teach. We heard him with our ears when he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We heard him when he said that the Father and I, we are one. We heard him when he stood up and he spoke and he calmed the sea, when he raised the dead, when he blessed the children. And then he says, not only that, but Jesus was visible, which we have seen with our eyes. We saw him heal the sick. John says, we saw him when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. We saw him crucified, and we saw him alive three days later. And then John says, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands, he says Jesus was tangible. Tangible. Maybe John is referring to the time at the Last Supper where he leans against Jesus. Maybe John is remembering after the resurrection when Jesus says to Thomas, he says, put your fingers here and see my hands and put your hand in my side. Jesus' human body was material. It was physical. And that Jesus was a human being and person as physical and as tangible as any of us is integral and indispensable to the proclamation of Christmas. And then there's this. that Not only is Christmas about being vocal, and not only is Christmas about being material, but Christmas is about being relational. And John introduces one of the key words in the Christian life. He uses the word fellowship, and fellowship comes from the Greek word Koinonia. Now, how many of you in the room or how many watching online recognize the word koinonia? Right? Koinonia is one of those words that are very familiar to us. And matter of fact, um, we are so familiar with it that we sort of have adapted it into our English vocabulary as an English word. 
uh, there's a church in Kitchener called Koinonia, Christian Fellowship. You read uh, studies, and the title of the study is Koinonia. Now, we also have some words, some French words, that we have incorporated into our English vocabulary, and we have incorporated them so well and so long that most of us have lost track of the fact that these French words actually are not English words, but are indeed borrowed from the French language. Can you think of any? Can you think of one? Yell at me. What? Deja vu? Mardi Gras? Yes, I never thought of it that way. Good call. What else? Okay, here's a list. Mirage, facade, porpourri. Not potpourrier, as I used to call it. Potpourri, hors d'oeuvres. And we could have some right now. Cul-de-sac, matinee. Encore, RSVP, please. Souvenir, didn't know that. Avant-garde, touche, risque, and fiancé. Coup de grace, and somebody already said it, deja vu. Well, the Greek word koinonia is a bit like that. It's very familiar, and we have sort of folded it in to our English vocabulary. But koinonia, fellowship, has a couple of dimensions. And the first one, of course, John says is this. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is the horizontal dimension of koinonia. Now, the words you too suggest that although the original readers of this letter and us, although we and they did not personally encounter Jesus physically and literally the way that John and the disciples had, John is saying that we too, us, that we can also experience the same spiritual fellowship as they did. Peter puts it a little differently and Peter says this, He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not, though you, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It means that we belong. I belong. You belong. It means that we are family. And I'm, there's a song going through my head right now. We are family. Never mind. Uh, sorry, getting carried away. Sunday morning, behave, I'm in church. And you know what the saying is, right? You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. So Ruth and I were in at, um, let me back up and say this. That I, first of all, I think, when I think about the family of God, I think that the family of God, us, now put your seatbelt on, that I think the family of God, us, that often we are much like our personal families. Ruth and I were in at Chapters the other night and looking around, and I was kind of doing some stuff, and I found these pillowcase covers. And the first one said, I shook out our family tree, and a bunch of nuts fell out. <laughs> and then I found this one that says, you call it chaos, but we call it family. Douglas Copeland, an English author a few years ago, wrote a book, a novel, and he entitled it this, All Families Are Psychotic. And he's right. Mine is, that's for sure. 
And I've met some of yours, and yours are definitely. (laughs) It's just the way it is, people. All families are psychotic, and welcome to the world. It's just the way. You know, I hear people saying our family is so dysfunctional. Whose isn't? You should meet my sisters. (laughs) Strange, strange people. But I think the dysfunctionality of our own families may not be surpassed by that of the family of God. Now, I want to say something to you, and I don't have it in the agenda, but I want to say this. I think that sometimes we ask way too much of each other. I think that sometimes in the family of God, and this is why we end up getting hurt and get our noses bent out of shape, is because our expectations of one another are just too unrealistic. They're just unrealistic. We're just people. We're broken. We're dysfunctional. We're a mess. And that's just the way it is. I like something Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, Christian brotherhood, and I added in sisterhood because of the date of the language. A Christian brotherhood, sister, is not an ideal which we must realize It is rather a reality created by God in which we may participate. Which brings us to this, the vertical dimension of fellowship and koinonia. Here is where our relationship gets a little bit more functional, if you will. And John says in verse 3, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that the litmus test for Christmas is relationships. And if Christmas highlights anything, it highlights relationships. That the incarnation indelibly stamps on us an attitude toward relationships. It starts with God saying, I want fellowship with you. I want a relationship with you. That's where it starts. God says to us all at Christmas time, I want a relationship with you. Christmas is about relationships, God's relationship with his creation. And then there's this. At Christmas, we want to be around people. At Christmas, we want to be in relationships. We want to be able to create relationships, and we want to be able to build those relationships And we want our relationships to be more personal and more intimate and closer. That's why. Because the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is the model, is the secret to our relationships. But there's also this. I hear people saying to me that Christmas is the loneliest time of the year. And one of the reasons why loneliness is so accentuated and acute at this time of year, at Christmas, is because it's about relationships. And this is another reason why the incarnation is so important. Because the triune God wants to have a relationship with us. The triune God wants a relationship with us. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. 
God is no longer a remote idea or just an impersonal force. That we can know him personally. Now, for some of us, we're used to that idea. But for others of us, that may be something for us to get our heads around. The triune God says, I want a relationship with you and you. Christmas is about reaching out. And God is reaching to us. See, Christmas is about being relational. And then finally, Christmas is about being emotional. John says, he says, for we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, the stated goal of John's text here is joy, and it is not the only goal, and it is not the only goal of every text, but it is the goal of this particular text. Did you know that joy appears 140 times in the New Testament? And prompting the most frequent command in the Bible, rejoice. Do you know how many Christmas carols have the words joy or rejoice in them? I counted about six. About six. And there's good reason. Then there's this. Whose joy is our joy? John says that our joy may be complete. Now, the question is, whose joy is our joy? Well, I looked it up a little bit, and the translation we're using says our joy. Another translation says your joy, and that makes good sense. And then I looked it up in the New English Bible, and it says this, the joy of all of us, and I really like that. But here's the most important thing. Our joy is rooted in God's Trinitarian nature, in God's joy. God's joy in being God. And we know that God the Father is the source of joy. We know that God the Son models joy for us. And we know that God the Holy Spirit produces joy in us. But this Holy Spirit-produced joy is not our average joy. Whatever and whenever God's joy is spoken of in the Bible, it is always done so with superlative overtones. For example, the angels said to them, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Not just joy, but great joy. This heaven-sent joy embodied in Jesus at Christmas is good for all seasons of life. To rise above the raging battle, to feel beyond the pain, to live unfettered to the immediate and to look with hope to the future. This joy, even in dark times, 
when sorrow enlarges the capacity of our hearts for joy. Like a diamond whose beauty is enhanced against the black background, true joy shines brightest against the darkness of trials and tests and tragedies. And this is why James is able to say these words, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. And of course, Jesus said these words, These things have I spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be fulfilled or may be filled or full, complete, is John's words. Power of Christmas, joy. If there is one thing that none of us wants to be, it's shallow. No one in the room, nobody watching online, wants to live a superficial life. Deep is good, right? Friends want deep conversations. Philosophers want to think deep thoughts. Coaches want to have a deep bench. And fans want their teams to go deep into the playoffs. And gardeners want their plants to have deep roots. And investors are hoping for deep recovery. And we want to be deep people. And we want to live deep lives. Deep implies substance. If something is deep, it's profound. It's sufficient. It's real. It's enduring. A number of years ago, we were pastoring in a church, and there was a couple in the church that bought this um, rural old schoolhouse, and they renovated it to make it their home. But the problem was that they didn't have very good water, and so they decided that they were going to sink a well and begin to look to see if there was better water, and what happened is, accidentally... They struck an artesian well. And the water came with such volume and with such velocity and with such force that it started to wash out their home, the foundation of their home. They had to call in a company to seal the well with cement. And even though they didn't have good water, they had no idea that there was an artesian well existing absolutely directly under them. They had no idea that under their house was a subterranean well of water. Christmas gives us a deep joy, a subterranean joy. No matter what is happening on the surface, no matter what is happening in the circumstance, in the situation, God has opened his subterranean well of joy. And so we are free to be emotional at Christmas because the incarnation gives us subterranean joy. It's what Christmas does for us. It's what Christmas does to us. You see, Christmas is about being vocal. Christmas is about being relational. Christmas is about being emotional. Christmas is about all of these things. 
And the next time we wish someone a Merry Christmas, we need to think about this. But I want to pause, and I want us all to just for a moment. And I know that some of you in the room and that are going through difficult times, dark times, trials, tragedies, testings. Not all of us, but some of us. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Pastor, why don't I experience this subterranean joy, this well of God's joy that is supposed to be a reality in my life even when I'm going through such terrible circumstances? And my question to you is this. Have you asked him for his joy? Have you asked him? Have you centered upon his word and the promises in his word? And are you living by faith that what may be taking place in our lives today, God is doing something else at the same time? So I want us for a moment to just close our eyes. And I want to pray for us. And I want to pray that the joy that Christmas is about, and it's not this sentimental feeling of the warm and fuzzies. No, we're talking about a joy that rises up even when we feel the loneliness when we feel the testing, when we feel the tensions of life. The Bible says that we can know his joy that passes all of this and surpasses it. So, Father, today, in this room and online, and those that will be watching the archive in a few days or a few months, Father, I pray today, particularly for those that are walking through the valley of shadows. I pray today, or we pray today, particularly for those that are walking through difficult times, painful times, hurtful times. Those today that are walking through and they don't know where to turn next. I'm reminded of Isaiah said that this king would be an everlasting father, a prince of peace, a mighty counselor. Wonderful. And to those today that are needing direction, I pray that you would be that counselor for them. I pray today that, Lord, as they ask for your joy, May they all of a sudden throughout their week begin to realize, oh, I feel his joy because it will begin to come up. So, Father, I ask today that you would help those that are struggling, going through difficult times, that they would request of you your joy. And this power of Christmas, would begin to bubble up, begin to rise up, begin to come up and fill them. Past circumstance and situation and whatever is happening on the surface, a deep joy, 
a subterranean joy. In Jesus' name, amen.